Blog Talk Radio. Well, hello. It is March the 3rd, and uh, this is Ursula Pottinger, and I'm here with my beloved friend and partner, business partner, Anne, from Be Above Leadership. And today's uh, episode is called The Energy Drain of Coaching. Um, so we're <laughs> looking at why can coaching be so tiring? <laughs> <laughs> Right. And, and if it is tiring, are you doing it wrong? You know, what is, what is all of this? And as we've gotten into thinking about it and talking about it and researching it, we have realized it is a very, very layered, layered subject. So um, let's talk about this. I mean, I think there are sort of, you know, here's what I love about uh you know, the work we do, Ursula, is uh, it, 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 there are so many things that are somewhat paradoxical, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. No, absolutely. And not only are they paradoxical, but they are so layered. Um, you know, neuroscience and the brain is complex. It is layered. So even the topic uh, that seems like straightforward, energy drain of coaching, should you be tired, should you not be tired, there is a lot more to it than meets the eye. Yeah, and, and I, I love that you say it's so layered. And so uh, let's look at one layer of this, because I remember being told in coaching school, oh, so many years ago, you know, like if you're exhausted after coaching, you're, maybe you're kind of doing it wrong. Or, mm-hmm. And I was think, thinking about that in preparation for this call because I was thinking about, well, when is that true? So I, think, mm-hmm. I don't think that that is absolutely true. I think you can be doing it really, really right and be exhausted, and we'll talk more about that. But I do think there's a piece of this where if you are tired because you are doing all of the work, that your client is not, you are more engaged and more committed to their growth and transformation than they are. And I always have the image of sort of like a Sherpa hauling somebody up Mount Everest because they can't walk for themselves. Yeah, then I think that's probably true. You probably are doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I completely agree. I mean, I, you know, I have to uh, own up to it that uh, I have been coaching occasionally where I feel tired and I know I've been doing all the work and the client is just, just like going, yeah, ho-hum. Um, right. You know, it's, uh, it, and it's really... I think what, and I heard the same thing in coaching school, I think at the time what they were referring to is when we as coaches are trying to find the answers for the client, yes. that is when it yeah. gets tiring. Yeah. And maybe this is, so. do you think it is maybe, or maybe it's a different tiredness. I was just thinking about our earlier conversation in regards to newer coaches versus experienced coaches. Well, I mean, everything, I want to come back to sort of some fundamentals in terms of neuroscience that, you know, for you and I are sort of go without saying, but, you know, we had to learn them along the way. And so there's a fundamental factor, which is the degree to which the brain is running on glucose. And about 80 to 90% of the neurons in the brain are converting glucose, maybe not 80, but, but say about 80%, I think is what I read. So that what they're doing is they're, they're excitatory, 
they're you know create they're converting glucose um, so that we can think so that we can make connections we can make new neural connections um, and that is that is going to drain glucose and if your glucose is drained you're going to feel tired so there uh-huh. is a simple fact that the more mental energy that you are bringing, the more focus, you know, a brand new coach where you're sitting there going, oh, my God, what powerful question can I ask now? What should I do? What principle mm-hmm. should I use? Your brain, you know, you, we have you in a brain scanner. Your brain's going to be lighting up like a Christmas tree. <laughs> and your glucose <laughs> is going to be getting depleted. Um, in fact, I had this wonderful client who learned from one of her supervisors to just come up with five really good, powerful questions and like really mm. good ones. And we worked on that, like just powerful, strong ones. And it was such an amazing uh, tip. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. I think it was Mary Olk who suggested it. I was like, that is freaking brilliant. Because they weren't just like, what do you want? They were bigger than that, but simple. Because mm-hmm. her brain could then lock in on mm-hmm. and integrate and make her own these five questions. And then we talked about, okay, once those five questions are really like, you know, they're there, they're your tools, they're automatic, then you can add some more. So I thought that was great right. brain management. That is that is great energy management. Now, having said all that, uh, what I also know about clients that their topics do vary so much. And I think just uh, spending time and energy on just listening for what's there. Uh, <laughs> Figuring out what the, the hell the topic power. is. <laughs> yeah, right. I know. I know what's underneath all these layers and yes and, and then this and then that. You know, having these five powerful questions is a great, a great tool. And I think we spend a lot of energy, brain energy on just listening and trying to figure out, well, what is actually being said here? Well, and when we think about the brain's automatic response and in, in, you know, the Coaches Training Institute, we call it level one listening, where we're just, you know, this is the automatic thing that the brain does is it says what, so we're going to talk more about personal relevance in a minute. But, you know, if Ursula says to me, oh, you know, we've decided I have to take my dog to the vet, you know, my brain is automatically looking for why do I care about that? What's, you know, like what's interesting? Did I have a dog with the same problem? We're looking for connection. It's part of our human experience. And the brain kind of does that with a certain amount of automaticity. So if I want to disrupt that and stop the automaticity of, oh, I just took my dog to the vet kind of response, that is Mm -hmm. going to require inhibiting. I have to inhibit Mm. that. I have to be conscious of that level one, stop it, and find Mm -hmm. something else to say. And that's more tiring than it is to just go on autopilot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is a, you know, in in coach training, I mean, there is a a training piece that's called self-management, and that's exactly what you are talking about, is not just, going oh yes I also have a dog or a cat or a whatever um, and you know have it be all well and I think the other challenge is that we know that the brain is self-referential it constantly right. wants to make the connection with self and stopping well, that you know as you said is hard it is and I think it's part of our beautiful 
you know, evolutionary tribal nature, you know, we want things to make sense. And what do we have in order to make sense? We have our own experience. And when we lived in small tribes, we had very similar experience, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we all went to Mm -hmm. the same river to bathe and get water. I mean, that's the river. And so to be able to process like that made a lot of sense. Now, you know, I might be Mm. teaching a client in China. We have very different cultural references. It takes a lot more energy and effort. The other thing that, you know, you and I talked about And I'm still bookmarking this personal relevance, but I wanted to also talk about, so on the one hand, you have a newer coach who's like, oh my gosh, what questions should I ask? What tools should I use? You know, they don't know yet and everything is taking a lot more active in like uh, cognitive processing and awareness. It's not as automatic. Then you have, you know, people like us have been coaches for almost 20 years. But we, it's not, like the, on the one hand, the like knowing what question to ask, having an idea of what tool to use, all of that does become more automatic because of the mm-hmm. process of neuroplasticity. But the yeah. other thing that starts happening is the been there, done that. You know, yeah. a client comes in with an issue and our brain is already automatically thinking of the 800 potentially other times Mm -hmm. we've heard about that issue and how it has resolved 798 of those times. And it already knows how this is probably going to play out. And to inhibit that can be painful. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I love that you say it's painful. That is when I get a headache. (laughs) I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. This is uh, really, um, I, I, so, I so agree, which, um, you know, which is really interesting um, when we talked in our little blurb uh, on Blog Talk Radio about, um, you know, felt empathy and also compassion fatigue. It's an interesting thing for me because sometimes the more complex the topic and the more complex and wide the emotions are, the less exhausted I am because I think it just is so interesting to me and so stimulating layered human being versus something, as you said, that I have heard uh, the solution to 798. Yeah, and of course it's new for the client and it's not that they're being boring, but one of the things that happens in our brain is that, and this is as I understand it, it's going to be a little too simplistic, but whatever, you know, our right hemisphere is more cued to that which is new. It's always scanning the world, looking for anomalies, looking for what's new. And when it finds something that's new, it tends to activate a bit more norepinephrine, which is the form that adrenaline takes in the brain, sometimes also called noradrenaline. Um, But it's basically going to give you a little bit of a focusing jolt of, you know, it's like a little bit of caffeine for your brain. It's going to sort of say, hey, this is new. Pay attention there. This This is interesting. You need to know about this. You haven't heard it before. So when you are talking about you have a very complex thing or, um, you know, something you haven't encountered before, literally your brain is, your brain is sitting up and rubbing its hands and going, oh, now that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I know, really. Oh, I'm I mean, going to be a little more awake for that. 
<laughs> I know it's a huge bit of stimulation, and you know I know that really is a huge contributor to the brain's clarity and focus. And I really have noticed that I get sharper the com- more cl- complex it gets. Yeah, and the the piece that feels like you know, um, is the kind of been there, done that. I've had a lot of conversations around this, even though we do know, ideally, every single one is new. Every person is different. The problem is after 20 years of coaching, you do start to recognize a lot of patterns. The brain is also a pattern recognition machine. And so to Mm -hmm. inhibit that and to say this is a unique individual may or may not fit in the pattern, even while you're using your pattern detection to help make meaning, I think that's why we get a headache sometimes. <laughs> from mm, mm-hmm. You know, I um, find this really useful um, in, in regards to patterns. Um, and it's almost like a, maybe as a sort of a, an inquiry for all the people that are listening is, uh, is going like, well, even when you've heard it before, what might be a new pattern to look for? Mm, mm. Well, one of the, you know, really interesting things for me in the past year is I have been more cued to um, some different patterns, and I have been studying what they call in psychology the cluster B personalities, and that has made conversations more stimulating because just as you say, I have been saying, oh, is this part of this new pattern that I'm still Mm -hmm. trying to learn about? Yes. Um, I want to say something else about the whole pattern recognition. There's a lot of talk out in the coaching world and in other human development about intuition. People throw a lot of stuff around about what is intuition. Ursula and I firmly believe that intuition is a very complex, interdependent, and interrelated system of various ways that we are processing information. One big part of the system is something called contextual intuition. And we Mm -hmm. think of it as the micro memories around a certain area or topic that you accumulate through experience. So if you are a doctor who specializes in infectious diseases, or maybe you're maybe you're becoming an expert in the coronavirus, right? Just to make Mm -hmm. this timely. The more cases you diagnose, the better you get at it and the quicker you get because you start being able to process all of the data very, very quickly in, mm-hmm. a, in a less conscious, more automatic way. Mm-hmm. We get contextual intuition in coaching. It's part of what we rely on. It's one of the reasons why, you know, when I was a um, front-of-the-room leader for the Coaches Training Institute, and I would demonstrate coaching in front of the room, and the students occasionally would say, occasionally, not all the time, but occasionally they would say, you know, and I really hit it out of the park, they would say, oh, my God, how did you even know to do that or to go there or to ask that? And I knew that the the answer was because I've been doing this a long time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So at the one hand, we want to be present that this is a new person with a new topic, with a new issue, you know, be present, be in the moment, be mindful. On the other hand, we also want to acknowledge, of course you're using your contextual intuition without even telling yourself to, it is going to be informing you. 
Yeah, absolutely. And there is a gift in that, but it also uh, can have a drawback uh, as it relates to, you know, getting tired. Um, so um, so we've, we've talked about uh, this whole thing of inhibition and self-management um, and then also the patterning uh, thing and then, um, and then personal relevance, um, which when we talked about um, what I realized is also really making sure that the clients that I say yes to are in the area of my interest, uh, something that I am curious about and am continually curious about, um, and not so much maybe in a niche or an area that uh, has no either personal relevance or no interest to me. Yeah, and I think that this piece, this is a, this, these are two words that Ursula and I are starting to pay a lot more attention to, this, this question of personal relevance, because it starts showing up everywhere in the brain. And, you know, we first started talking about it in terms of neuroplasticity and making change. So from the client's perspective, if we are cued to things that are personally relevant to us and, you know, on one level that can be as simple as if you buy a new red Toyota, you start seeing more red Toyotas. It becomes mm-hmm. the fact that you are, have bought it or are considering buying it becomes more personally relevant. You know, if you're not paying any attention to the U.S. election, the Democratic primaries are going on right now, it, you might not even notice, you know, mm-hmm. the, the various things that have happened. I'm, it's personally relevant to me, so I'm like, oh, this happened and that happened in my brain, you know, as I'm going through my Facebook feed and things like that, it pulls those out because mm-hmm. that's what we pay attention to. And again, we'll get both norepinephrine, again, that's that adrenaline, that focus thing, and also some dopamine. And dopamine is a very complicated neurotransmitter, but one of the things that it really does is it, it tells us what's important and where to pay attention. And there's a reward mm-hmm. involved with that, with that. So I think that's Ursula mm-hmm. for you, that when it's personally relevant, you get a reward out of having the mm-hmm. conversation and that cocktail of dopamine and norepinephrine makes the conversation less tiring yeah absolutely no that's uh, that is that's that's totally that's totally true um the other thing that you um sort of uh unpacked and peeled back um is um how our neural networks um have an impact on potentially us feeling tired or not tired. Do you want to talk a little bit about the default mode network and the task positive network? Yeah, I'm not exactly, there's not enough good um, research out there about the energy drain. Other than that, you know, the, the way that this default mode network was first discovered, you know, as I understand it, again, too simplistic was this idea that when we are in and doing what, what they call wakeful rest, the assumption years ago was, oh, you know, the brain should be less active. You should, it should consume less energy. But what they found is that even when we're not focused on a task, the brain is working, is still, there's all of this communication going on in your brain and that's the default mode network. And it gets, you know, quite 
fine-tuned from there in terms of what get you know what sorts of things we do activate the default mode versus the task but that's the big picture of it so even when your mind is wandering or you're doing things that are more activating the default mode network you are still burning glucose you're still consuming energy in your brain and there's a lot of going back and forth i think between the task network and the default mode network as coaches and mm-hmm. should say a little bit more about why why that is, Ursula? Yeah, yeah, please. Mm-hmm. Okay, so task network, we have to be very – task network is – I think of task network, one of the ways to remember the difference is that default is mental, mental and personal time travel, and the task network is right here, right now. So mm-hmm. we have to both be very present with our clients right here, right now, but also doing this mental time travel either with them or without them. And what I mean by that is we might literally tell, ask them, I do this all the time, tell me what you want to be saying to me five years from now. Mm-hmm. We're going to travel together to the future. Or I might, they might be telling me about something and I need my default mode because what I'm starting to be aware of is the past three jobs that this person has had, they've run into the same issue. And mm-hmm. I need to take that meta view as a coach and say, hey, by the way, why don't I just let you know something sounds familiar here and you're the common denominator. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, so, you know, to that point, it, just a very quick side note, it's not yeah. only that uh, they might have had, you know, two or three jobs uh, and that, you know, gives us a sort of a pattern thing, but even just looking at previous coaching calls, they might have mentioned right. something like this before or a value that they have not been honoring or something that maybe was a month or two months or three months ago that we need to sort of tap into again. And so, yeah, exactly. And so we have to be both in very much in the task mode, which is present time right now, working to bring our client present time right now. What are you feeling in your body right now? That's a very, that's going to activate that task mode. As well as what you say, say, I just want to remind you of something you said to me last time. So I don't Mm -hmm. know if we're burning twice as much energy because we have to be in both of these goddamn networks at the same time. (laughs) I don't know. I haven't seen any research on this because I think there are very few professions that require both networks in the way that ours does. Very few. So I don't think there's a lot of research to say that. Yeah, no, I I've, I would agree with you. You know, maybe generally there hasn't been enough research uh, on what happens in the coach's brain as well as what happens in client's brain when we are in a coaching relationship for long periods of time. But it would make sense to me just from a practitioner and practical point of view because, the, as you said, the... The focus on the here and now, what are they saying, um, what's present right here, and then digging around in a past or future, what have they been wanting, you know, that something they said, you know, two weeks ago, this is what I want a year from now, and now they're backtracking and saying, well, this is not what I want anymore. I mean, making all these connections and constantly switching backwards and forwards, I can see why this would be tiring. 
Yeah, and I love that you're, you know, illustrating it that way because I'm going back to this original, well, if you're tired, you're doing it wrong. I don't know. I mean, there is a lot of processing going on in the coach, even if the coach is then just saying something very simple like, oh, you know, what's interesting is this is what you said to me last week. How does that fit with what you're saying now? That requires Mm -hmm. a mental effort of, as you were saying, you know, memory and switching and coming back to where the client is now. And you're not necessarily making the meaning, telling them what it means, saying, well, I think, you know, I think this means that because this is what you said. But you're asking them, which means you had to travel back in time to do that. Um, So that, yeah, it's a lot of sustained effort (laughs) on our part. Oh, and then in, in addition as you're doing all of this with your client, you are consistently inhibiting your own yeah. level one response. Like, well, if I had your yeah. talent, I would definitely go to, to graduate school or, you know, or yeah, wouldn't, yeah. you know, I, you're inhibiting that constantly. Yeah. Yeah, no, and, and uh, is, I've, I've sort of pulled up the Wikipedia um, article on the default mode network, and uh, this, is, this is, I think, also why this is um, energy draining, because it says in the task positive network, uh, there's, you know, social working memory and autobiographical tasks. So in other words, uh, the task positive network is looking at what is the story of me, no, when somebody the default says something mode. to not, me, not the, not the, uh, oh, sorry, yeah, not sorry, the, the default mode, yeah, default. yeah, the default mode, yeah, it, I'm constantly then having to inhibit story of me, yeah, right, so you're constantly because I have to, I have to re- stop thinking about it, yep, right, but I'm still going to be in the default mode network because it's the social memory of the other person and the other person's perspective uh-huh. and standing in their standing in their shoes, so. It is a. Uh, it's fascinating um, how interrelated this all becomes mm-hmm. when we're when I think we're doing coaching well and are really feeling our clients. So that goes to this this kind of where we started um, originally and what we put in the description, which is this felt empathy, or sometimes it's called affective empathy. And we've been, Ursula and I have been really studying empathy this year because it is one of the hallmarks of someone who uh, may be in that psychological uh, cluster B personality, a psychopath, a sociopath, narcissist, borderline. What you have is disruption of different types of empathy. Um, and so big picture, what the researchers are saying is, you know, and we can break it down from here, but big, big picture, two buckets of empathy Cognitive versus affective. Cognitive being you can understand how somebody feels. Affective being you can feel how somebody feels. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and I think of the, you know, like if I tell you or you watch me, you know, fall down and grab my knee, you know, most mm-hmm. of us would like go or grab our knee or, mm-hmm. you know, flinch, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. That's, that's because we're feeling a ghostly kind of similar mm-hmm. feeling as to what I actually felt. And that kind of empathy, as we understand it, it gets developed very early in childhood with 
good enough parenting doesn't have to be perfect but with fairly with with parenting that is somewhat responsive uh, because it's mm-hmm. it's modeled and it it grows very very early in the kid's brain mm-hmm. um and it's hard to turn off it's hard to yeah. turn, if you really have good effective empathy you know and you see something um you know you you see a you know, even for some people I know, they can see a dog limping and it's like getting stabbed in the heart, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. you know, you see somebody crying, you see somebody in pain. It's not, it, it happens without a ton of choice. Now, there's a whole bunch of other stuff in here where it tends to be stronger in terms of the group that you identify with. You may not feel it as much or at all with people you perceive to be in a different group. There's lots of stuff around this, but the big picture is that kind of empathy you don't turn off. Cognitive empathy is more of a choice, right? Like I can Mm -hmm. tell you, oh, you know, my my knee's in a lot of pain. And if you're in a good mood, you might go, oh, honey, that's terrible. That must really hurt. That must really suck. But it's not that you're going to feel anything in your own knee. And that yeah, no, that absolutely. has to do with more of a choice, and also if people are less stressed, more rested, you know, they have a reason for it, they have a motivation, it's personally relevant to them, that kind of empathy you can turn it off and on, but that's more of a choiceful empathy. And I will say one other thing, just a little rabbit hole, um, it is something that psychopaths has used to their advantage to come across to turn on their cognitive yeah. empathy and make people feel like they really care when actually they don't because yeah. they're not feeling anything and a psychopath will tell you no I don't feel anything it's why they can hurt people yeah. so yeah. very important I think to have effective empathy as well as cognitive <laughs> yeah basically so yeah, why are we bringing that up well, I think you're bringing it up uh, uh, because, I mean, we we are hearing it not just from coaches, but I'm hearing it from healers, from massage therapists, from, you know, I hear it from uh, people that care for other people, including healthcare. So it's not just coaching, but uh, I hear it from people, this whole thing about compassion fatigue and knowing how it is related to the brain, I think, gives us some choices. Um, And so to your last point, one of the choices is self-care. Well, and let me make just draw the map um, super clear, although it may be like totally obvious this might be overkill, which I'm definitely known for at times. But, you know, so if you've got a high level of felt empathy, and many coaches do, and then we also, because of the process of neuroplasticity and using those networks a lot, feel, I think we get it better and stronger the longer that we're coaches. And I I think about movies that I, we've talked about this, Ursula, like, like I can't watch violent movies anymore. Uh I tried to watch Uh Parasite, which got an Oscar and I couldn't watch the end of it. It was, I could Uh feel it too much. Uh Now, 20 years ago, I had no trouble watching Pulp Fiction, which is an incredibly violent movie, and I just thought it was entertaining. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's my research study of one (laughs) that says, oh, I think my (laughs) mirror neurons and my effective empathy has gotten stronger after using it for 20 years. But I've talked to a lot of coaches who agree with that. They're like, yeah, I feel things more strongly now than I used to. So here's my mapping of that onto this compassion fatigue and exhaustion. It is that um, 
if you come in and you are having some strong emotions, my body is probably going to kick up some of the chemical, some of the the same chemical impact that's happening in your body, which Mm -hmm. anytime we run adrenaline through our body, we have a recovery period where it's, Adrenaline is kind of meant to be delivered in sort of a long, slow, steady delivery um, with some in reserve if you need to run away from a tiger. But if you are constantly running adrenaline through your body because your clients are, you may actually drain what you need for that day. And Mm -hmm. that is part of this compassion fatigue. Ursula, does that make sense Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Yes. Oh, absolutely! No, it, uh, I can, I can really, I can really identify, um, you know, both uh, how I feel things, but also where I need to draw the line. And knowing what that line is has been helpful. Right, and then you, this comes back to this self-care, and and this, um, and I think different healers, and you know, you were saying healthcare workers and healers have different strategies. Um, but I think about, you know, why in coaching it's really important to me to not to let my client go at the end of the call. Yeah, and mostly I do. And there have been times that I've got clients who are in a kind of crisis, and one of the things that's really hard is I can't, I I, I can't actually let them go, and I'm mm-hmm. carrying them, I'm carrying them with me, and carrying some of my worry, maybe with me. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is uh, this is such a gift in coaches in coaching, and I think this is why our clients love us because they know this is a safe place where they can be fully themselves and we we care about them. But as you said, when you know when when I put the phone down, as far as I'm concerned, that needs to be the moment when it's it's done. And it's I think what I've learned over the past 20 years, it's really about trust, trusting that the client is able to handle whatever is going on in their lives beyond this, you know, 45 or 55 minutes coaching call that I struggled with when I was a beginning coach. I was always thinking, well, they surely now they have left them, you know, I've left them in this very tender (laughs) place and, oh my God, what are they going to do now? You know, Um, and I know that they are totally fine. This is that holding them naturally creative, resourceful, and whole, and why that is so critical. And sometimes that may mean that, you know, their homework is to get other support if they're really in a crisis. And that could be, you know, and there have been times where where what we've talked about is the need for a lawyer or the need for a therapist. You know, they need the kind of support because of where they are. And that's one way that I manage. Like if I know my client, I had a client in a very sticky legal situation with their company and you know that's what we finally came down to is this is not a coaching situation you need somebody who's got an expertise in employment law and I need to know from you that you're going to go do that and then I can relax you know because that you know they're taking care of it in the way that they need to take care of it. Um, Yeah no that's that is a really good point uh, knowing how far your uh, responsibilities and also from an ethical standpoint, how far you can take the coaching and knowing that there are certain places where you really have to hand 
the client over to someone uh, who might be more skilled in whatever whatever it is that they're that they're dealing with. Um, I think so, uh, this is yeah. Go ahead. Can I say one other thing about that? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I was actually sure. um, at the at the ICF conference in Prague. There was this wonderful young woman who did something on coaching and therapy, and one of the things that she really brought home to all of us. It was a really good session. She really brought home to all of us that we need to know what we would do with a client in crisis. You know, we need to know even like what the laws of your state or country are. What would you do mm-hmm. if a client is threatening suicide? You know, what are your resources? Who do you have on speed dial? Oh, that's an ancient concept, isn't it? Speed dial. Um, you know, who yeah. do you have, you know, like, like, like you need to have some kind of awareness and plan if a client is in some kind of crisis, because that will also help regulate your nervous system so that you are, you know, not overloading your system with adrenaline, but, you know, you've got a plan and that's a really, I think that's really, really important. Um, Mm -hmm. So Ursula, what other advice do you have about how to avoid compassion fatigue and having coaching burn you out basically oh there's uh, i mean what i think what i've uh, really learned uh, during our conversations in regards to this topic uh, i am really seeing that choosing the kind of clients with the kind of topics and the kind of energy that you really want how important that is now you know, everybody tells you you should have a niche and it's about marketing. And I'm just realizing it's really, this is really about personal relevance and avoiding <laughs> a little bit of compassion fatigue is being excited about the kind of topics and the kind of challenges that coaches uh, encounter that that needs to be, it needs to be exciting and stimulating and rewarding for you. That will you know, help um, the, the, the energy drain. I think that is absolutely brilliant. And, you know, one of the things you and I have always said and, you know, believe in for ourselves is don't pick the niche that you think is the, you know, the the thing that's right or the thing that will sell lots of coaching. Pick the thing where you come alive. There's a famous quote about that, like, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive. Because if you are Mm -hmm. coaching in an area where you are boundlessly curious you will be a better coach. Your brain chemicals will focus you. You'll be better at what you're doing than if you're just doing the thing that everybody tells you, you know, oh, you should, you know, you should coach executives. If you're passionate about coaching executives, please do. But if you're not, go coach forest rangers and figure out how to make that pay if that's what excites you because you'll be better <laughs> at it and you'll stay in the profession longer. Seriously. Oh, I, um, I love that. I love that I, you bring in the forest rangers. That such comes out uh, of so nowhere. It comes out of left Well, it isn't totally out of nowhere because one of my colleagues out here has a contract with the, you know, with the Forest Service, and they she coaches forest rangers, and she absolutely loves it. So hey, it's a possibility. <laughs> I think the the other thing about this is be aware that your niche, your niche, may need to continually evolve and change. And I want to just tell a short story here. 
um, when I, probably about 15 years ago, some, somewhere in there, I had a contract to coach middle managers, high potential managers at Cargill. Mm-hmm. And it was really fun. They were everything from shrimp farmers to people who worked in the salt mines to accountants. It was absolutely really interesting until it wasn't. And at yes. a certain point, there, there was enough pattern at that level and the complexity of what they were dealing with. You know, this was after a few years and a lot of coaching hours. So it wasn't even the amount of time. It probably was that I coached a lot, a lot, a lot of them. And I mm-hmm. started realizing I wasn't excited anymore. And I think mm-hmm. this is why some coaches start deciding, you know, I want to coach in the C-suite. You know, wonderful. It pays better. It's kind of sexy to be like the C-suite or CEO coach. It probably also, as you develop at a coach, will be, you know, it could be that you are needing a greater level of complexity, and that is why you want to coach at that level rather than maybe the middle manager or the beginning manager level. So, you know, and it's, uh, let, it also makes let the, things change. It also makes, yeah, exactly, and I just wanted to say that, that also makes the case for not uh, beating yourself up um, if after a couple of years you feel, oh, you know, I think I'm going to change my focus now. I want to do something different. I mean, I do it all the time. And, you know, I often think, man, Earthra, you've got to stick with one thing for a change. <laughs> but I know, you know, after, you know, three, four years, it's run its course. I've heard it before and I'm, I want to be on to the next thing. And I've really, um, I've really discovered that works for me. Yeah, and what's nice is you, it's all within, this is, you know, both Ursula and I have what I will acknowledge as bright, shiny object syndrome. You know, we love the next exciting thing. You know, we're very easily bored and we need a lot of stimulation. But I love that I have this big bucket called coaching. And within that, Mm -hmm. we've done everything from try to transform the nonprofit world to explore neuroscience to explore consciousness, but it's all had a consistency that has helped us deepen our professionalism and not just be dilettantes, thank God. (laughs) Um, But I, yeah. Yeah, so this. so this uh, would be one thing. And then, uh, you know, I, I talked to a, a client uh, yesterday who is a coach and uh, really uh, realized that she had really overloaded herself, not just with coaching clients, but also projects. So I think mm. uh, from a coaching perspective, if you are, you know, if your focus is individual coaching and that is your main thing and that's what what you love to do, you know, just to realize or notice how many clients can you have on any given day or any given week. But if you're doing other things like speaking and training and writing and, well, in your case, researching, um, you you need to take that into account because for her, she said, well, it's not that I have three clients tomorrow. It's the fact that I have a huge project deadline by Friday yeah. that I need to get done. That is what's stressing me out right now. Well, and then think about, again, back to inhibition, which is very um, glucose consumptive. You use a lot of glucose in your brain to inhibit. And if what you're doing is inhibiting these thoughts of, hey, when you get off the phone, you're going to have half an hour to work on that project, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think about, Mm -hmm. um, you know, or it might not even be work. It might be that you are inhibiting that your mom's in the hospital or that, you know, your cat's not feeling well, whatever it is, 
all of these have an overall energetic, you know, load. They contribute to the energetic load. You said something a little while ago, and unfortunately, I feel like this has become a cliche, and it should not be a cliche. But this is, I think, all of this also points to how maybe we should just have new language around it. Instead of saying self-care, talk about it as, you know, restoring the instrument or, mm-hmm. you know, like how do we restore the instrument of our being? Because, mm-hmm. you know, you are, you're processing all of these other people's chemicals, all of this, you know, activity going on in your brain. You know, what do you need to restore your instrument? Um, because it, I believe for our profession, it's not optional. Yeah, I, I agree. It many years ago, anybody. Uh, I, yeah, no, I, many years ago, um, you know, self-care uh, became not a luxury but an essential uh, from rather than going, oh, this is a luxury now that I take a break or go for a walk or have a massage. It's not a, it's not a luxury. It's an absolute essential. As you say, as a coach, we bring our hearts, our souls, our body, and our brain to every single coaching session. And that is the instrument. It's the totality mm. of you that you bring. And mm. if you don't look after that uh, machinery, that instrument, that, com- that complex system that is you, um, it will eventually, um, it will re- eventually run out of steam. Yeah, and then when I think about things like just being with a client who is maybe in a bit of crisis, and I know we have all cried with our clients, it's a beautiful thing, but that may be a time that you particularly just need to go for a walk because what needs to happen is a good positive way to get those, get those chemicals out of your system. And I keep thinking about this really cool line from um, Dan Siegel, who's one of our teachers, and um, really we really admire him a lot. He was talking about this young woman that he had worked with as a psychotherapist. And she said to him at the end of the therapy, she said, you know, with other therapists, I felt heard. But with you, mm-hmm. I feel felt. Mm-hmm. So this... Yes, I feel felt, I think, is a big part of what we do. And I had someone else tell me about a mutual acquaintance that we knew who was trying to get into the coaching world and wasn't doing it very well. And she was talking about a time that this person coached her and, um, you know, and how kind of flat it felt except for one moment where she mentioned something about one of her children. And in that moment, this other coach kind of had this moment of empathy and was, and she said, that was the moment that I thought if this coach could bring that all the time, they would be a good coach. But it was like this Mm -hmm. moment and it comes back to that's using your, you know, being able to use your body as this instrument to feel our clients and for her it was a reason why she would never have hired this person because mm-hmm. she didn't yes. feel felt <laughs> right yeah so yeah. she didn't she didn't feel that yeah. uh, she didn't feel that con- connection that that heartfelt connection and and you know the the felt empathy that we were talking about so in wrapping up um what uh, well what is there to wrap up other than to say well I, um be yeah, do you have a wrap-up? <laughs> I do. Well, I don't know if it's a wrap-up, but it is something else that I want to say that I think there are other really good um, 
disciplines and processes. You can use essential oils to kind of help, you know, protect your own Mm -hmm. energy system. Some people do visualizations where they hold a rose in front of them and everything that everybody says that day goes into the rose and at the end of the day they dissolve it. Because there is this question of how do we hold people's deepest pain and longing without it disrupting our own energetic and biochemical systems. So I do also advise or believe in looking to our people, you know, who work in more in the energy field to, for advice on how to keep your, you know, how to clean your energy. Um, Even if it's Mm -hmm. just washing your hands or running your hands over your chakras and things like that, Mm -hmm. all of that can also help you recover and stay more resilient. Yeah, and uh, just one little piece to add is if you have some kind of a spiritual practice, be it, uh, you know, talking to the angels or the trees or God or you pray, um, that is also a part of, um, that can also be really, really useful, I think, especially in letting things go, uh, to hand it over Mm. to a higher power, to spirit, um, knowing that that spirit, uh, whatever the name is that you use, will also look after your clients. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Well, as yes. always, if you have any, if this is fascinating to you, you want to learn more about how to use neuroscience as a coach, uh, you know, stay, stay tuned to Be Above. We have a couple of in-person classes this year in Santa Fe and in Salzburg. We also have a new virtual program launching um, the middle of this month. So if you are somewhere where traveling to us doesn't work for you, we've got something for you. So feel free to reach out to me or Ursula um, and let us know if you'd like to more information. We are always available. We, you know, this is what we do, and we love it, and it always stays stimulating. <laughs> Yes, it's certain. It's certainly, and it helps our compassion fatigue. <laughs> and absolutely, absolutely. actually, always have my compassion fatigue. So, uh, and thanks uh, everybody for listening. Thank you, Anne, for joining me, and um, have a great uh, self-care um, and and beautiful energetic week. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye, Ursula. Thanks, everybody. Goodbye. Take care. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.